Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome, everyone, to the Movie Marquee. Today's showing is the 1942 classic Casablanca. With me, as always, is Ken. I often speculate why you don't return to America. Did you abscond with the church's funds? Run off with the senator's wife? I like to think you killed the man. It's the romantic in me. And Ted. I'm shocked. Shocked to find that there's gambling going on in this establishment. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. And I'm Eric. I stick my neck out for nobody. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. All right, today we're talking about Casablanca. Let's uh, kick it off here with Ted. Tell us some of the particulars of this movie. Casablanca was directed by Michael Curtis with a screenplay by Julius Epstein, Philip Epstein, and Howard Koch. It has a running time of 102 minutes. It has a release date of January 23rd, 1943. And it had a budget of $1,039,000. And a box office gross for adjusted for inflation of $10,462,500. It stars Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine, Ingrid Bergman as Ilsa Lund, Paul Henreid as Victor Laszlo, Claude Rains as Captain Louis Renault, Conrad Veet as Major Heinrich Strasse, Sidney Greenstreet as Signor Ferrari, Peter Lorre as Signor Ugarte, Kurt Bois as the pickpocket, Leonid Kinski as Sasha, the bartender, Madeline LeBeau as Yvonne, Joy Page as Anina Brandel, John Quaylen as Berger, S.C. Sekal as Carl the waiter, and Dooley Wilson as Sam. All right. Well, tell us about some of the reviews of this one. You're going to do something a little special this time, I hear. Yeah, so we're going to do something a little bit different because when we go on to Rotten Tomatoes for Casablanca, this is certified fresh with a 99% for the critics score. And it has a 95% audience score. I really couldn't find any negative reviews. The most positive review came from Roger Ebert. He wrote a novel about his great movies, and this was one of his most favorite movies of all time. He says, if we identify strongly with the characters in some movies, then it is no mystery that Casablanca is one of the most popular films ever made. It's about a man and a woman who are in love and who sacrifice love for a higher purpose. This is immensely appealing. The viewer is not only able to imagine winning the love of Humphrey Bogart or Ingrid Bergman, but unselfishly renouncing it as a contribution to the great cause of defeating the Nazis. All this is handled with great economy in a handful of shots that still, after many viewings, have the power to move me emotionally as few scenes ever have. The bar's piano player, Sam, a friend of theirs in Paris, is startled to see her. She asks him to play the song that she and Rick made their own as time goes by. He is reluctant, but he does, and Rick comes striding angrily out of the back room. I thought I told you never to play that song. Then he sees Ilsa, a dramatic musical chord marks their close-ups, 
and the scene plays out in resentment, regret, and the memory of a love that was real. This scene is not as strong on a first viewing as on subsequent viewings, because the first time you see the movie, you don't yet know the story of Rick and Elsa in Paris. Indeed, the more you see it, the more the whole film gains resonance. From a modern perspective, the film reveals interesting assumptions. Ilsa Lund's role is basically that of a lover and a helpmate to a great man. The movie's real question is, which great man should she be sleeping with? There is actually no reason why Laszlo cannot get on the plane alone, leaving Ilsa and Casablanca with Rick. And indeed, that is one of the endings that was briefly considered. But that would be all wrong. The quote-unquote happy ending would be tarnished by self-interest, while the ending we have allows Rick to be larger to approach nobility. It doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. And it allows us vicariously experiencing all of these things in the theater to warm in the glow of his heroism. In her close-ups during this scene, Bergman's face reflects confusing emotions, and well, she might have been confused, since neither she nor anyone else in the film knew for sure until the final day who would get on that plane. Bergman played the whole movie without knowing how it would end, and this had the subtle effect of making all of her scenes more emotionally convincing. She could not tilt in the direction she knew the wind was blowing. Seeing the film over and over again year after year, I find it never grows over familiar. It plays like a favorite musical album. The more I know it, the more I like it. The black and white cinematography has not aged as color would. The dialogue is so spare and cynical, it has not grown old-fashioned. Much of the emotional effect of Casablanca is achieved by indirection. As we leave the theater, we are absolutely convinced that the only thing keeping the world from going crazy is that the problems of three little people do, after all, amount to more than a hill of beans. You know, it's I, funny you brought up a, a thing there about, you know, how possibly it hasn't aged as well as movies that were in color. Is this ever a movie that they consider colorizing? God, I hope not. I think it was colorized back in the Turner Classic Dawn it, of Age it, where everything got colorized. It when might he bought have everything been, in 86? It might have been because I know with some of the RKO releases, like It's a Wonderful Life, they've put the color into that. The only colorized version of Casablanca that I've ever seen is the Looney Tunes version. I would hope that it's not out there. It wouldn't surprise me, though. I, it just okay. wouldn't feel right to me. Those passages from Roger Ebert's book, and I've said this before, I love how he writes. He writes so colorfully, and he adds so much detail. That's why he's my favorite. True that. All right, Ken, let's roll in with the uh, plot of this one. You've got your work cut out for you here. I know. It's like Ted already read like half the <laughs> plot for me already. But here it goes. December 1941, Rick Blaine owns a nightclub in Casablanca called Rick's Café American. It attracts a varied clientele, including the French, German officials, refugees desperate to reach the neutral in the United States, and those who prey on them. Although Rick professes to be neutral in all matters, he previously ran guns to Ethiopia during the Second Italo-Ethiopian War and fought on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. Petty Crook Ugrate boasts to Rick of letters of transit that he obtained by murdering two German couriers. These papers allow the bearer to travel freely around German-occupied Europe. They are priceless to the refugees stranded in Casablanca. Ugrate plans to sell them at the club and persuades Rick to hold them. Before he can meet his contact, Ugrate is arrested by the local police under Captain Renault. 
a poor, corrupt prefect of the police. Ugrate dies in custody without revealing that Rick has the letters. Then the reason for Rick's cynical nature, former lover, Elza, enters the establishment. Spotting Rick's friend and house pianist, Sam, Elza asks Sam to play as time goes by. Rick storms over, furious that Sam disobeyed his order never to perform that song and is stunned to see Elsa. She is accompanied by her husband, Victor, a renowned fugitive resistance leader. They need the letters to escape to America to continue Lazo's work. Major Strauser has come to Casablanca to stop him. Rick goes on a drinking binge that night as he remembers his relationship he had with Elsa in France before the German invasion and how she left him with only a vague note advising Rick that she couldn't go with him. She visits Rick, but Rick, being drunk, goes off on her before she could explain what happened. When Lazo makes inquiries about the letters, Signor Ferrari, Rick's friendly business rival, divulges his suspicion that Rick has the letters of transit. Lazlo returns to Rick's cafe that night and makes him an offer for the letters. Rick refuses to sell at any price, telling Lazlo to ask his wife the reason. They are interrupted when Strauser leads a group of officers in singing a German patriotic song. Lazlo orders the house band to play the French national anthem. When the band leader looks to Rick, he nods his head. Lazlo starts singing, alone at first. Then patriotic fever grips the crowd and everyone joins in, drowning out the Germans. Strauser demands Renault to close the club, which he does on the pretext of suddenly discovering that there is gambling going on in the premises. Here's your winnings. Elsa confronts Rick when he refuses to give her the letters. She threatens him with a gun, but then confesses that she still loves him, which he reciprocates. She explains that when they met and fell in love in Paris, she believed her husband had been killed attempting to escape from a concentration camp. While preparing to leave with Rick from the city during the Battle of France, she learned that Laszlo was alive and in hiding. Rick's bitterness dissolves. He agrees to help, letting her believe she will stay with him when Laszlo leaves. When Laszlo unexpectedly shows up, having nearly escaped a police raid on the resistance meeting, Rick has his waiter, Carl, speared Elza away. Lazo, aware of Rick's love for Elza, tries to persuade him to use the letters to take her to safety. When the police arrest Laszlo on a trump-up charge, Rick persuades Renault to release him by promising to set him up for a much more serious crime, possession of the letters. To calm Renault's suspicion, Rick explains that he and Elza will be leaving for America. When Renault tries to arrest Lazo as a range, Rick forces him at gunpoint to assist in their escape. At the last moment, Rick makes Elza board the plane to Lisbon with Laszlo, telling her that she would regret it if she stayed. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Strauser, tipped off by Renault, drives up alone. Rick shoots him when he tries to intervene. When police arrive, Renault pauses, then orders them to run up the usual suspects. He suggests to Rick to join the free French. As they walk away into the fog, Rick says, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Well done great final line to a movie probably one of the most memorable of all time ted when was the first time you saw this movie or the most memorable time the first time i saw the movie was in college that's for sure i know that for a fact however this movie quickly became one of my favorites of all time my most favorite viewing of this movie a few years after my wife and i got married For Valentine's Day, there's a theater in Chicago called The Music Box that around Valentine's Day, they have a showing of Casablanca. And it is a kind of a a sing-along because you can sing along to the songs. But it was seeing it on the big screen with my wife. 
it being Valentine's Day and having dinner in Chicago. There was just something magical about seeing it on the big screen. It solidified everything for me that this is probably my favorite movie of all time. All right, so you're kind of tipping your hat then to your review there. Yeah, it's most not gonna, likely. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> This isn't a real real big stretch. Okay, we can see that. So for me, I came late to the game on this movie. I probably saw it maybe four or five years ago, rented it, watched it. Thought it was okay. Wasn't blown away by it. But as I've watched it more and more, I've definitely appreciated the movie a lot more. Uh, For this podcast, I've watched it several times this week and have really come to appreciate this movie. So we'll look forward to my review. And uh, no surprise on Ken's here. I believe he said this is his favorite movie of all time. Am I correct in saying that, Ken? Yes, this okay. is my favorite movie of all time. So all right. putting it out there, as far as me seeing it for the first time, I actually came late to the game on this movie. I had kind of avoided it. I don't know why, but I avoided it for years. I probably started watching this movie about eight years ago. It's probably became the most watched movie in the last 10 years that I've seen. I've seen it in the movie theaters a couple of times, watched it for the 70th anniversary edition of the movie. And uh, we're coming up on, I believe, the 80th anniversary. Is this available Um, in 4K yet? No, this is not available in 4K. It's just available on Blu-ray. I have many editions of this, including two box sets, one DVD box set, and one box set on Blu-ray. 70th anniversary on both of these limited editions and then just a regular blu-ray and of course the digital copy i don't have laser disc but i'm sure if i go and go in eric's pen he probably has one and I'll you know i don't know if i have this on laser disc that's a really good question because i have so many of them i can tell you i don't have the cover for it i probably have 25 or 30 percent of my laser discs are just a disc and no cover i did hmm. see this at half price books as on the laser disc so if i'm back at did half you? price books i might just have to pick that up Frame it. Frame it. So I've been trying to get the whole family to watch it. The funny thing is my wife tried to get me to watch this even years before I watched it and I passed and she didn't watch it. And I've been for years trying to get her and my kids to watch it and none of them will watch it with me. You know, for the younger generation, it is kind of a tough movie to watch. It's kind of out of date to them. You know, someone in their 20s, teens even, you have to be a real film noir kind of person to watch this movie. You would probably only watch it because you're like, oh, it's Casablanca. Everyone talks about it. I might as well sit down and watch it. It's like watching, you know, the Maltese Falcon or watching uh, Citizen Kane, you know. Well, you I agree watch with you to, to a certain extent, but I don't think it's a tough watch for this generation. I think this generation, it might be a tough bring to the table to watch this. But once you start watching this, I think this movie is timeless. I think it'll be 50, 100, 200 years down the road and people will still love this movie because I think it is timeless. I agree. People it's will just love it. getting them there. And it will be timeless, but I I think with this generation now especially, it's the old man and me coming out, I think this movie's way too slow for them. Yeah, I disagree. I think this is one of the most perfectly paced movies that's ever been made in the history of film. There's not a part of this movie where I go, okay, we're dragging here. We need to pick it up. I have never felt that way about this movie. Well, when you you watch this movie with a teenager, we'll get a teenage review on it. I'll be curious. I'm kind of torn on that particular subject i do agree to a certain extent this is definitely a cinephiles movie this is one of those top of the heap type of movies for any cinephile i do think though that if you can convince 
somebody who just casually enjoys movies and they're younger. I think if you can get them to sit and watch it, they probably would. I do agree that it's a little bit slow for some people of this age because of the type of movies that are being made now are a little exactly. bit different. Superhero, CG, fast pace, short attention span. Did move, you see move, that move, model move. airplane at the beginning of the movie? But, Talk yes. about CG. Come on, dude. I know. It's awesome. I know. There is a movement out there right now for making movies that are more real. If you take some of this year's crop of Best Picture nominees, there is a movement towards more of a realistic type of movie. In that vein, I think the problem is getting somebody to sit down and watch it. But once they do, I think it's undeniable. The story comes through regardless. And I think it's because of the day and age that we're in now where we have so much media out there that these movies can easily be pushed to the side because you got Netflix, you got Apple TV, you got Peacock, you got Hulu, you got Prime, you got all these producing original content and people instant access where Casablanca might be something that maybe you'll find on HBO Max under their current classic movie section. But it's featured prominently there. But yeah, it is, but you have to actually go there. But most people are going to Netflix, get their stuff. So I think this generation, it's more of what's the latest thing we've heard? You know, Ted Lasso's on Apple TV. Got to go watch Ted Lasso. Got to watch whatever's new on Netflix. You know, Netflix comes out with a new show almost weekly, and that's like the new best thing for everybody to watch. So I think it's a little harder in this generation where in our generation, yes, we had cable. But they played the same thing over and over again. So you were easily go to the place like Blockbuster or, or your local video store and say, you know what? I haven't seen that. Let me grab that and take it home. That's the problem now here with movies like Casablanca. I don't think it's as slow as we all think, but it, maybe it's not as eye-popping as what we see now with the special effects. But we ripped on those type of movies. We ripped on like Lethal Weapon and James Bond because they try to outdo themselves with faster and crazier ideas. This movie is extremely believable, whereas we're in a generation that likes movies that are just a little bit unbelievable. The other thing that makes it a little bit difficult, there's a certain section of people who will never watch it because they don't care for black and white movies. I don't subscribe to that theory. I don't understand it because I think black and white movies are still as relevant today as they were years ago. It's almost a beacon back to a different time. Even if like in the modern day, the artist won Best Picture four or five years ago, and that was a black and white movie. Even take Schindler's List. Schindler's List being colorized, I don't know how many people could really handle that being in color. Because there's a certain distance you can put yourself and things aren't in color. But I know that there's people out there that don't care for black and white movies. That's a shame because of how these studio movies were made back then. We can go back and forth between what is considered good or bad about the studio movies of the 30s and the 40s. But the cool thing about that was you had these character actors that were across the board that were in all these different films. I mean, you have Claude Rains here who is playing the police captain, but then you can see Claude Rains also play the evil senator from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Those are the type of actors you're going to see if you watch movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and you're going to be like, I know that guy, you know, and I'm going to feel comfortable with this character actor in this movie. So I would tell anybody who is afraid of watching black and white movies, 
if you really like movies that tell a story and you have great acting, and I'm not saying that the actors of this generation are not good. They are. They are very good. But there's something to say about these character actors of the 30s, 40s, and 50s that elevated the movies of its time. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this elevation with the character actors here as we move along into the podcast. I think people are doing themselves a disservice by saying it's in black and white, so I'm just going to not watch it. My wife is one of those. The only black I know white many people that are watch. like that. Many. Yeah. My wife only will watch It's a Wonderful Life in black and white. Everything else, black and white, she really doesn't want to touch it. Mm-hmm. It's a shame because you're missing out on great stories. And some movies that will never be able to be duplicated in this day and age because of the expectation of the viewers now. You're getting rid of all the Charlie Chaplin movies. Yeah, I'm not getting started on the Charlie Chaplin movies. I know. You know my collection. I know. Cool. So this movie, as we've discussed, is really based on relationships and characters. There are many different relationships between these characters, and we're kind of going to discuss them. We're going to break them up into categories and kind of roll this whole thing together. So let's kick it off here with uh, one of the first uh, roles here, Rick and Sam, the piano player. What do you think, Ted? Sam and Rick have a special bond and a special relationship where Sam works for Rick, but Sam's been through things with Rick. We come to find out that Rick knew Sam when they were in Paris, when Elsa was in Paris with them, and he helped Sam get out of France as the Nazis were taking over Paris. So they've been through a lot together, and I think that Sam is now protective of Rick In Roger Ebert's paragraph that he was talking about, that's a scene that even before I had read Roger Ebert's article, I had started to notice that scene more and more of the subtleties. And this is where you have actors that kind of... And for for the listeners, Ted, which scene are we referring to? There's a scene that's probably about 15, 20 minutes into the movie. We are inside Rick's cafe. And Sam's playing the music and in walks Elsa and Sam notices her and he doesn't stop playing the piano and leading the band, but he has a look of panic on his face that is just, you know, that that person means more than some he's shocked to see that person and you know that the two people that walked in one of those two people he's got a connection to immediately and it's so subtle and then you have ingrid bergman walking in that scene too and she just with her eyes makes a connection to sam and it's all in the subtleties of that particular scene and this is one of the things that makes the movie so great while yes it's the dialogue is amazing it's how these actors come together to make these and there's so much subtlety in their movements their eye movements and everything it adds so much and you see that there's a pain that sam has over her being there and he doesn't want to play the song as time goes by. And He's trying to get her to leave. It's clear as day when she walks in there, you can see, like you said, without even a, a word, the look of why is she here? I agree with Ted and, and I agree with you, Eric. He tries to even get her to stop. He says that... Bad luck. bad luck. Bad and, luck. Yes. 
he is very devoted to Rick. We see it later on when Rick is drinking and he's like putting all his sorrows into the bottle because of Elsa showing up and him remembering all the times that he had in Paris with her. And he won't leave him. He can go home, but he stays, plays the piano. He's about ready to take a seat with him until she shows up. He's offered to play over at the other club for more money, but he doesn't want to do it because he's dedicated to Rick. What's kind of weird, though, towards the end, Rick does choose Elsa over Sam. And basically, Sam does eventually go to the Blue Parrot. And we don't actually hear from Sam ever again. No. And actually, he gets replaced by Louis. There's kind of a change in the guard of like friends. And that happens. Certain friends take you to up to a certain point. But you always will be friends and you always will have those relationships. But I'm, I'm kind of a little disappointed that Sam disappears in the last third of the film. As a counterpoint, I would suggest this. What Rick is setting out to do is dangerous. There is a more than likely chance he's going to be killed or at the very least sent to a concentration camp for what he's going to do. And instead of including Sam in this plan, he chooses to do what's best for him because Ferrari is going to keep Rick's open and Sam is going to be there as well as Sasha and the maitre d'. But he makes sure that he's taken care of. That's an awful lot to ask somebody to risk their life over what Rick's about to embark on. You're right. This plan could backfire on Rick. You never know how it's going to end. And he could end up dead, arrested, killed in, in prison. I mean, there's many different ways. And you're right, Sam, 1942 Sam's not going to do very good in occupied Germany. No. Or well, we don't know that. We, we don't know how long this relationship has lasted. We don't know if this is a relationship he got in Paris. Was this a relationship that he had when he was in those other conflicts before, before I this? I think it was conflict. other conflicts. I think he's known him for, for many, many many years so he's been in this dangerous situation for yeah years but probably them, not so. at this point what i would have liked probably seen is maybe that conversation very briefly yeah. yeah but then that takes away the surprise at the end does rick go with her does rick get arrested all that stuff you know we need to know what direction i see that and i get it it doesn't ruin of course the film for me i'm already telling you this is my favorite film of all time but at the same time i am disappointed not to see sam in the last third of the movie, because he is such an important character in the first half of this film. One thing I will say, this is a testament to Michael Curtis, the director. Sam's character actually has heft and weight to it. And in the time when this was made in the early 1940s, to put it mildly, Hollywood had a touchy relationship with racial stereotypes on film. That is put it mildly. That's to to whitewash quite a bit. But you never get the feeling that Sam is a caricature. He's never played down to. He actually has heft and weight to his character. That's a credit to the actor, Dooley Wilson. Wilson. Interesting that, fact about Dooley is he wasn't a piano player. He is a drummer. No, and a he's singer. a drummer. And you look yeah. at it, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can see it. I'm yeah, if you're not paying attention, that, though. I think even if you don't pay attention, you could notice that all he's doing is the same motion up on the down, piano, at the down, especially right. at the beginning. Later on in the film, they do a little bit better job of doing a kind chest high, and his arms are moving a little bit better. But that first scene is so bad as far as knowing that he's not a piano player. They could have done a better job, maybe filmed it with the piano facing us, not us seeing him at the keys. I think in this day and age, they would have done it that way. Back then, it, we're taught it wasn't him basic something. piano. We're taught right. him basic piano. But back then, though, they 
probably just didn't worry about it. It wasn't something that filmmakers at that time thought was no, important. No, they wouldn't have concerned themselves with it. Yeah. But he's treated with respect. That's a, a massive win for this movie. I don't know if he's treated with respect. I would say he's treated as an equal because mm-hmm. Rick honestly is kind of a jackass to everyone including Sam when he's yelling at him, when he's like, are you going to go to sleep? No, never. You know, he's just yelling and stuff. But he's like that with everyone. But I think that's something he's treating him like a friend. Like if either one of you were drunk off butt. He's an equal. But here's the thing too. Rick also makes a very subtle political statement. And knowing the Epsteins who wrote the movie, he makes a very subtle political statement when he says, I'm not in the business of buying or selling human beings. Right. Which was very big in that era. And even then, it is a major part of the movie because in Casablanca, human beings are being essentially bought and sold so that they can escape the Third Reich. But it's also on a meta level talking about racial politics of the time. If you understand the writers of that time, they couldn't come out and say what their political beliefs are like directors and writers are today. They didn't have that freedom because they still operated under the thumb of the the studio system where they were not allowed to make political statements. And you look at somebody like Trumbo, who in the 1950s was blacklisted because he had attended a communist meeting once. So it's little things like that. And I appreciate that. And it's something I appreciate more the more I've watched the movie. You catch on these little things that they say in there and it's like, okay, I know what I know what you're getting at. When he was saying, like, when is New York still sleeping? What time is it in New York? Oh, all of mm-hmm. America's sleeping. It's when he's saying it. It's December of 1941. Right. This Ooh. takes place approximately three days before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I think a lot of credit, as Ted just talked about, goes to the Epstein brothers in their screenplay of this play. They were very well known for bringing life to their characters. This whole film is blessed with the right director, people writing the screenplay, the right person producing the film. The producer, Hal Wallace, he was there for every bit of this movie to help the director form a direction of this movie. And I think this is kind of like the perfect storm. You have perfect actors, the perfect writing, the perfect direction, the perfect music. Everything is coming together here. Let's talk about Captain Louis Renault and Rick, an interesting relationship between these two. Fun relationship. It is a fun I, relationship. This is the reason why I love this movie. There's this banter between them. is kind of interesting. This man crush that Louis has on Rick, he talks about Rick like he is this amazing person. He tells everybody how amazing Rick is. He sees Elsa. He tells Elsa, if I was a woman, I would be in love with Rick. He tells the general how Rick is such a great guy. He's not going to interfere. He's not going to do this because of how he is. He just really admires Rick's way of handling things. You know, it's just wonderful to watch. Their banter going back and forth when they're betting on if Lazo's going to escape again from the Germans up until the point of the end of the movie where Rick isn't sure what Louis is going to do when after he shoots the general, he looks at Louis and, and like, oh, what is he going to do? And he's like, 
round up the usual suspects. And then they, of course, go off together. It's a fun relationship. And Claude Rains is superb here. How Claude Rains doesn't get a Best Supporting Actor Oscar here, I don't know how this happens. I don't. I have to look to see who won that year. But Claude Rains is perfect here. He brings the humor. Like we joked around earlier about the closing of Rick's because there's gambling. And then they, they give him his winnings. Like Ted said earlier. He's complex. He's such an interesting character because he sways by the wind. And he even says that. He basically says he goes where the wind blows. He's not afraid to actually say that in front of the Germans. He's not afraid to say it in front of anybody. But he's a womanizer. He tries to take advantage of situations. But we somehow love this guy, even though technically really unlikable. He should be unlikable. One thing about him I'm not too fond of, and it's subtly put out there, but it's definitely comes back several times is how he gives people their... uh... Transit, yeah. you know, when the, when the cop transit goes, papers. oh, sir, we have another issue with a right of transit. And he starts mm-hmm. fixing his tie kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty subtle. But even for yeah. 1942 standards, yeah, it's... Yeah. And that's why we're not supposed to like him, because he's like that. But for whatever reason, it's probably because of his relationship with Rick. Rick is the cool guy, the guy that we all wish we could be. We all want to be Rick. We all want to be Rick. But at, at the same time, we're all kind of like Louie. I had a friend that was kind of like Rick in the sense that I looked up to him and I thought he could do no wrong. So even though he did things that were wrong, I still admired him. I kind of was like amazed on how he handled himself in front of people in situations. Captain Renault's character, he is one of these people in this movie that he can be different things to different people depending on when you're watching the movie. He's also the type of person that begs this movie to be rewatched. Because the first time you're watching this movie, you're going to not know how he's going to react to different things. But the more you watch and the more you pay attention to his dialogue and the way he does butter people up and say different things, he's portrayed as the gambler that he wins in, in the gambling part of Rick's Cafe. He's gambling with his life all the time. He's walking that razor and he enjoys walking that fine line where he'll take it up to a certain point and he'll basically tell the the Nazis exactly what he thinks of them without telling them what he thinks of them. He is probably the most complex character. I'm still not sure if he and Rick had planned this out at the end of the movie, because if they did, it's the perfect setup. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie, is trying to figure out what Louis is doing on any particular given time. If you watch the movie and just watch his character and pay attention to everything that he does, he's playing a different game than everybody else. I don't think that he has any love for the Vichy government in France, the Nazi sympathetic government. The only reason that he has any loyalty to them is because they provide him a paycheck. But as far as being loyal to them, he's not. Where we get that is Major Strasse says that all over occupied territories in the Reich, there are people who are underground traitors. So there's a hint right there as to what Louis is doing. Louis's getting something in return, of course, we find out, for getting these people out of Casablanca. But he's also not loyal. The only person he's really loyal to is Rick. I think he knows at the end of the day, Rick's got his back. And I think it's so great that they're the last two people we see in the movie walking off together. I don't want to say that they've pulled a scam here, but they're going to pull something 
similar to what they did in Casablanca in another place to help people. That's why I really love his character. I don't think they're in cahoots though with each other because mm. I do think that look. Watch on, it differently. Well, I've watched it like a million times already, and and I will actually say that Bogart's face, his reaction to what Louis might do to him, he doesn't know that he's going to say round up the usual suspects. Once he says it, he's got that look on his face like I love you, man. I appreciate that. But he doesn't have that look. I really do think if he had to, he would have shoot Louis if he had to save Elsa and her husband because of his love for her is bigger than anything else in the movie. And it's supposed to be. I think Rick trusts Louis up to a certain point. Yeah, up to a certain and he's, point. And he's willing to enter into this arrangement, but ultimately he doesn't know how Louis going to, how if everything breaks wrong, he knows Louis, Louis not going to have his back. I don't think he knows. That's why he had to play him. He played him. He said the reason why that he had the letters of transit was because he was going to go to America with Elsa and he could do whatever he wanted with her husband. I believe that's what he was doing to him. He was playing him. And I don't think there's that trust until the end. I think there's almost the same character in a certain aspect. Because Rick has been probably playing that same razor that you've been talking about prior to this movie and those other wars up to this particular time. He knows how to play the game. They both know how to play the game. Why this works really well, again, is the writers here. The Epsteins took this character, took Louis' character, and made it differently. This isn't how it was originally supposed to be written. They focused on giving this character depth and giving him real character and humor. You could see it. I mean, it's played out extremely well. And we need it. Anytime that it gets a little too serious or that it needs to come back to, it's him. Whether he shows up at their table introducing himself or the general comes in and the general is like doing this, but he's like, he does it a different way to make it easier. Like when you were talking about the general talking about that he knows that there's traitors and all that stuff. When he says that, Louis has this like look on his face like, ooh, he knows. Because I think he secretly sympathizes with the people that are in the underground. He knows the people who's selling their rings, tending to sell rings. He knows what they are. He's just not doing anything about it. He's pretending to look a blind eye. Again, like you said, he's working both sides of the fence. But going back to the Rick thing, I truly believe that that relationship doesn't really truly start until the end of that movie. And that's why Bogart says this is the start of a beautiful relationship. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think it's prearranged. I think it could have gone either way at the end. And I think that Louis proved his friendship by doing something he's probably wanted to do since the beginning of the war and uh, kill Strasser because I don't think he likes the Nazis at all. They're playing him. He's playing them. And by committing that murder, he's kind of put himself into the trust of Bogart as well in this film. He even says to Rick, I know this is not going to look good for both of us. So when he actually kills him, it's an out. At the very least, Louis sees an opportunity here to get rid of Major Strasse. And I think that at the very least, he uses this opportunity to rid the world of Major Strasse. Because <laughs> he absolutely no love for the Nazis. And he has no love for the Nazi-sympathizing French government. He's a very complex character. It makes you wonder, too, because the whole MacGuffin of the whole movie are these papers from these two Nazis who were killed. And it's these papers that can't be disputed. Which is ridiculous. They serve their purpose. So it comes down to these papers, and Louis has to search Rick's Cafe for these papers. 
he looks at Rick and goes, where were they? I think he knows full well where those papers were at and that they were probably going to be somewhere in Sam's things. I think he purposefully didn't find those papers. I, no, I disagree. I disagree with you on that. Well, you're going to tell your whole police force yes. that not to look into the panel. That's the only place I would, I just don't want you to look into the panel. I think everything else you don't turn break it down. I think he has the whole force. He's the puppet master. And he's telling them to go in there and make it look like they overturned stuff, but don't look real hard. Go in and tear stuff up, but don't look real hard for him. At this particular time, I think he's leaning on the side of the Germans uh, and the Nazi party, and he's going to do whatever it takes to look good in their <laughs> eyes right now, because that's where the wind blows. At the end, the wind it's is blowing the direction to protect. Yeah, but at the end, his best scenario is to protect Rick because that's in his best interest. I think he is looking for these papers at this time because his best interest. I mean, he likes Rick, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, both Rick and Louie care about one thing, their best interest. If he wanted to find those papers, it wouldn't be for the Nazis. It would have been for himself. But Ted, if he doesn't find those papers and Lazo leaves, what's going to happen to Louis? He's going to get killed. Well, that's why he has to kill Major Strasse. That, that opportunity shows up at the end. It's not like it's going to present himself at any given time. So I think he is against Rick at this particular point. That, not that he wants to be. I don't think he wants to be against Laszlo or Rick or anybody else. But to protect his own hide, I think he's going to do his job and do it the best that he can. And we see that when he kills Ugate. When he kills him, we know that he's trying to suck up to the German leadership. He wants to make them believe that he's on their side. Well, I think the Germans killed him. Oh, okay, let's make something real clear here. Louis is part of the Vichy government of, of France, which is a Nazi-sympathizing government that was placed in France by Hitler after the invasion of Paris. So he's a part of that particular government. So he has to act sympathetic to the Germans. I don't think he would have killed Ugarte. Personally, I think Major Strasse and his SS Gestapo goons are the ones that put a stop to that. Because essentially, that's why they're sent there. They're sent there to find the guys who killed these two Nazi couriers. That's why the Nazis show up in, in force. The quote-unquote Vichy police that Louis is the head of Ugarte into custody, they would not have been the ones that would have been interrogating him. Major Strasse and his goons would have been the ones interrogating him. But he makes the final joke that he doesn't know how to write it down. Was it by suicide or trying to escape? Well, he's got to so. he's got to play the game. He's supposed to be on their side, and that's what I'm saying. He's playing the game. He goes, "You say the Third Reich like you're expecting other ones," and he's like, "Well, I go where the wind blows." And, he, and then he kind of questions him, and he goes, "Do you really think that the Nazi Party believes that you guys won't be successful this time?" He's telling him how he feels, but at the same time, he's saying. I'm with you because you're even telling me that, so I have no choice. I just don't think he's in cahoots with Rick at any particular point. They have a nice relationship. It's fun, but nothing is determined until the end. But that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes the character great is the fact that he goes so back and forth and he's all over the place. You know, even with the girl, the one that's trying to buy passage for her and her husband, she is going to risk sleeping with him in order to 
get her and her husband to safety. There, he's being a complete jerk to his self-interest. But then when Rick saves them from that, he doesn't mind. He really doesn't care. He actually is interested on why Rick did that. And so that's why you like this character, because all of a sudden now he's changed. And he says, well, I'm going to have Blonde in here tomorrow. So I really would like if you don't interfere with that one. I just think that this character is is a lot of fun and maybe we're just overthinking it a little bit, but this movie does not succeed without these character actors, especially Claude Rains. Let's talk about some of those secondary character actors that you bring that up. That's a great segue, Ken. Ted, who is your favorite secondary actor here? That's a good question. Yeah, there's so many of them to choose from. That is really tough. They all have a role to play here. They do, and they do it well. Yeah, they add so much color to the movie. These other characters that are in the orbit around our major characters, they're just not background. They actually have lives, and you can see, and I know I'm trying to just hedge my bets. He's stalling, man. He's stalling. Come on. Um, I mean, technically, Claude Rains is billed in the secondary, but to be honest... Yeah, he's 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 top of the secondary billing, but... He's, he's a major villain. character. But I think he's a movie doesn't character. exist without yeah. him. Right. Who I right. like a lot is uh, Sidney Greenstreet, who plays Ferrari. Yes. Um, he's really good in a lot of different movies that I've seen him. And he plays kind of similar kind of characters in those type of movies. But there's just something about him that's interesting enough that, I mean, he walks in a room and he kind of demands attention. And I think that's what I like about his character is when he walks into Rick's place, who's this guy? Who's this big guy who right. who's like doing these custom hellos to the people at the table and then owns his own place and he's kind of like the guy to go see for these like letters of transit as well you know he's the leader of the black market out there in uh, Casablanca he's very interesting guy I mean it's really between him and and Peter Lore he doesn't get a lot of screen time because he's basically killed off really early but these two guys are immensely talented and I I understand why Ted was having their struggle with because all these back players are awesome. The only person that I think that doesn't really do an awesome job is actually Paul Henry, who plays Victor Laszlo. He's very stiff. And he'll even tell you that that was a stiff part. But everybody else in this movie, even the bartender behind the counter. Sasha. Sasha the flamboyant he's, bartender. He's like, you know, Rick I pays you, me. But, yes. but he pays me. Yes, <laughs> yes. There's so many things that are right. There are, there are some messed ups in this movie. Don't get me wrong. There are some problems here. The but overly the act- polite Nazis. Why they don't shoot Laszlo on sight, I know it'd they, be a very quick movie. They take the advantage here of the average moviegoer of the early 40s here doesn't know these type of things. They, they're taking advantage of those things that maybe there is these letters that allow you to go all over the place. We think it's silly now, but back <laughs> then perf- it might have been. It's a perfect MacGuffin. It fuels the movie. And- it's what everybody's looking for. It's a talking piece. I think, Ken, you had talked about two of them. I'll pick another two that I think are really very interesting. And I love Peter Lorre's character, Vugarte. I think he's very interesting. And I, I love Peter Lorre in general. I think he's a, a great actor. But I'll take the maitre d' because the maitre d' is a German. Carl? Uh, Carl. And he's escaped the Nazis. But he's able to keep himself cool enough to serve them and everything but we also find out that he's also a member of the french underground even he has more of a backstory than just a regular background character he's very complex 
you can see when he has when he sits down and has the drink with that elderly couple that he probably had some hand in helping them get out of yeah that's why they want him out of Casablanca sure I think he's probably the only pure natured character in the entire movie (laughs) everybody else seems to have an angle that they're trying to play the other person that I would say and it's not because of the character because the character of Major Strasse he works as a villain and he's not cartoonish because playing that role it could be very cartoonish the man who played major strasse he actually had escaped nazi germany he was a german that escaped the nazis and married a jewish woman i believe and had actively worked against them for him to sit there and play major strasse and this isn't the only nazi role that he ended up playing he plays it with a certain menace but that it's not overbearing And I think that he brings a realism to that character because he's a Nazi, but he's also Gestapo. And those guys are more slimy than other Nazis. They don't play by the same rules. These are professional tattletales and they're the cops. And I think he plays it very well. But like I said, more for the actor and how interesting he particularly was than necessarily his character. But I think that as an actor, he plays it very well on a role that in somebody else's hands could have come off as a caricature and been way over the top, cartoonishly bad. Most of this cast are immigrants. Only four U.S.-born actors were in this movie. Everybody else is a immigrant of some sort. This is a time where you have a lot of people coming from Europe to the United States because of the war. I think it's an interesting film. We're talking about refugees that are trying to get out of Casablanca, but we have refugees that are probably in this movie and playing all these extras. And, and I think it brings an authentic feel to the movie. Even though this is shot on a studio backlot, the actors themselves make you feel like you're in another country, that you're in Casablanca. I think that's amazing. I mean, at this particular time, not only do you have immigrants coming in, but you have a lot of the actors that we've had, they're fighting in the war. We have some of our best actors at this particular time already active in war. And I think that kind of makes this movie, like I said, feel authentic. You're right. And just one last little subplot that I really enjoy is the Hungarian man and wife that Rick ends up helping. I like their story and I like how she makes her plea to Rick because like I had mentioned earlier, Eric, that he's kind of a jerk to everybody. He's playing off that role really well, but that's the first time we really get a glimpse of who Rick really is. He's not what he seems to be, that there's more going on there. I think it's also very telling that the first time we see Rick, he's literally playing chess. I think that's a very interesting thing. But yeah, I I really like that little subplot of how he helps them get out of Casablanca. That is, it is a great subplot because it shows the, the human side of him that he's not just not going to stick his neck out for nobody, but he kind of switches the game around a little bit. Interesting thought about that is the actress who played that refugee that's trying to get her and her husband to the America. She's actually the stepdaughter of the studio head, Jack Warner. Nice. So, you know, she doesn't do a bad job, actually, no. in, in that role. The only thing that bothered me when she was talking to Rick was her eyes just went back and forth, left to right. I'm like, are you reading something? Because she was just, it was just going. Could be. But it's still not a bad job. She actually pulled it off. Let's talk about the meat and bones of this movie, the uh, the love triangle that is Elsa, Laszlo, and Rick. 
I mean, that really is the heart of this movie, let's be honest. What do you think, Ted? These three characters, they are timeless because they're all interesting in their own way. And you have sympathy for each character in a different way. And I think that that's a unique position for the viewer to be in. Of course, you're going to love Rick because Rick is cool. He's Humphrey Bogart. You don't get any more cool than Humphrey Bogart. He's like I'm the sorry. Bonds. No. No. He's much. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> hey. Um, Rick is what every guy hopes and wishes he could be. Whereas Elsa, you feel bad for her because you know that she loves Rick, but she also feels a sense of duty to Laszlo and that there was love there, but it's turned into not the kind of love that she wants. And then you feel bad for Laszlo because his wife really probably doesn't love him, but I don't think it matters a whole lot to him. I think he loves having her with him, but I think that he lives for the cause. And that's what makes the end of the movie so, I'm not going to say tragic because it's not tragic, but it makes the the end of the movie so kind of heartbreaking in so many different ways. You know Elsa's giving up the love of her life to go with Laszlo. And you know that Laszlo, he might not have a future. He's working in the underground. He's already targeted by the Nazis. He's going to continue to be targeted. He's going to be constantly in danger. And then Rick, who's not only giving up the love of his life, but now he's entering into a world that's full of uncertainty. But I think Rick is the ultimate hero because he sits and finally he makes the decision that Ilsa will do more good being with Laszlo than she will being with him. Because I think at the end of the day, he knows that what he's going to do, same kind of like with Sam. What I'm going to do, I can't ask you to go do with me. I agree with you to a certain extent, but I do think she does love Laszlo. I see it on her face when he leads the bar in the singing of the French National Anthem. The look on her face says, this is the man that I fell in love with. I do believe that there's a struggle. I don't think that it's the same type of love, but it is a strong love in itself. Because I think if she didn't truly love Laszlo, that she would have gone with him. And I think he wouldn't have let her go with him if he didn't feel that she loved him as well. And I don't think Rick would have let her leave if he felt that she didn't love him. So I do think she loves both men almost equally as strong, but in different ways. Laszlo is somebody that I think she fell in love because of his presence. I mean, he is the leader of the revolution, it seems here. And he is very commanding and he is fearless. I mean, he escapes concentration camps and people all over Europe and if not all over the world know of Laszlo and his great deeds. So I think she fell in love with the way he was. But I don't think she ever met anybody like Rick before. And so Rick is a different side that she loves as well. So I think there is that back and forth and she's willing to sacrifice herself for her husband. And she's willing to sacrifice herself for Rick. I think all three of them are sacrificing themselves and all three of them are heroes here. I really love Bergman's performance here. She's stunning here, more so than in any other movie I ever see her in again. I joke around and we joked around earlier that she liked to be filmed on one side of her face, but she felt weird about her looks and her weight. She didn't need to. We could see why these two men are fighting over her and wanting to be with her. At no time does her character make me frustrated with her. I understand her struggle, and I'm actually okay with her, with her loving both men and having a hard time deciding who to be with. 
I think she pulls it off extremely well. I did hear some mixed re- reports. Now, Bergman would tell you that she was never told how it was going to end, that they had two different endings. But the producer of the film will tell you that we always had one ending and she knew what it was. So it all depends on who you talk to to tell you how that should have worked. I would trust the actor. Maybe so. But she did have an interview where she said that she wished that Elza would have ended up with Rick at the end. Hmm. That's an interesting tidbit because I think like she is with the rest of the world trying to answer that question. People are going to be, as long as this movie exists, that's going to be the question that's going to be asked. I think you're right, though, Ken. Everybody here is a hero. I think Paul Enried... I know that you had said earlier that he played it kind of stiff, and I guess he is kind of stiff, but I think that that's what possibly what this character needs. Because if he's any more suave, you don't want him to be more suave and debonair than Humphrey Bogart's Rick. You don't want him competing. Exactly. Because they're really trying to show up each other. Exactly. Because then that's a different movie now. You're really going to have two camps that are going to go at it here. I think he plays it just the way he needs to. And he actually leads one of the greatest scenes in cinematic history. When Major Strasse has the band start to play the German song, and then Victor Laszlo gets the band to play La Marseille. With Rick's permission, though. (laughs) Rick nods and and agrees, yes. But I think Rick even understands at that point what is going on here. That scene is so powerful. It's hard to describe. There are times when I've watched that scene and, and it's brought me to tears because this is them making a stand against the German army. No, there's no shooting. Nobody's dying here. But everybody that sits there and sings over the top of the Germans could have been killed for doing that exact thing. It's the spirit. And I think when Ken, you said that she loves him, I think at that moment she sees the person that she fell in love with when she was a girl. And ultimately married Laszlo for that reason. She's reminded on why she's married to him. Because he shows the passion. You don't really see much passion from him throughout the movie. He's trying to stay alive. Right. But in that moment, it's unadulterated passion that he has to lead that song and to drown out the German advance into the bar. And I think the fact that it uses all of the other characters sitting there and singing along, it's just a very powerful scene. There's part of you that wants Rick to make the decision to to keep Elsa with it. But at the end of the day, it's what solidifies what needs to happen. She's in his arms and she says, I want to stop thinking. I want you to do the thinking for us. And I think it's at that moment that Rick realizes that he needs to be the bigger man and he needs to make the sacrifice and ultimately use the opportunity for good. And he does. So bad for the actor who played Laszlo, though, because he does say that after this role, it's harder on him to get better roles because of what he considers to also be a stiff performance. And this actually catapults Bogart to superstardom because before this, Bogart was on the rise. You know, he started off playing clean boy next door kind of characters, and then he graduated to gangsters. And this is his first major lead, the leading man here. Great things are in store for Bogart going forward, whereas the guy who plays uh, Laszlo here goes the other direction. Because arguably at this particular time, both of these actors were probably could go either way. But as far as the relationships go, this is the perfect love triangle. I don't think a love triangle has been done as well as this love triangle has. 
it's uh, impressive by all three actors. And we haven't talked about Bogart that much, amazingly enough, because we have so many people to talk about. But this is what we expect from Bogart basically the rest of his career. He's doing those Jimmy Cagney movies, too. But you're right. This movie did push him over. This is a star-making movie. Yes. Without a shadow of a doubt. And it's ironic. When he was on set, he said that he was filming a dud. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't think it was going to go anywhere. He didn't think it was. And this catapulted his entire career. The Maltese Falcon was awesome. And it's an awesome movie. But... This is leading this, man material right yeah, there. Yeah, this is what put him into another stratosphere. This is what put him into the elite of the elite. And some would argue um, the elite yeah, one. The very, the oh. very tippy top. This movie itself is the reason why I'm into Humphrey Bogart now. Humphrey Bogart is my second favorite actor of all time. And Casablanca is the reason for it. So over the last eight years that I've been watching this movie, all these other movies from Bogart are coming in. And I mentioned all the Lauren Bacall movies that he made with her and the Maltese Falcon. Uh, the only one that I'm not a big fan of is The African Queen. Outside of that, I'm a big fan of Humphrey Bogart's movies. It's just that one for me is just way too slow for me. It is. Um, it, it, it is. That's what, Catherine Hepburn? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that is is a slow movie. It's, yeah. 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 But outside of that, I'm, I really love everything that he pretty much does. He's now on Mount Rushmore, of at least of classic actors. I would put him up there with the top four actors of all time. I just think when he comes on screen, he has a presence about him that people gravitate to. Play the same character over and over again, and it still doesn't get old. It, you still gravitate Some would argue to he does he play the same character over and over and again. He, and he can <laughs> Um, and uh, Inger yeah. Bergman here is absolutely amazing. She's spectacular. Yeah, the words can barely describe, and she's absolutely stunning here in her looks and in her acting. Yeah, her demeanor. It's everything here, and it's a real testament to everybody who worked here. To and I'll be... be honest, the way the movie is shot is shot perfectly for her. Oh yes, I love the Definitely. shadowing. I love the. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the cinematography in this movie is just spectacular. It is. Yeah. And I know people ripped on the plane, but that the adding of the fog and everything at the airport, even though that it was meant to, to hide the fact that the plane wasn't real. How about the last things, scene? Uh, little people. They had little little people set up <laughs> right, out there to right, make the plane right. look bigger, which I thought For, was great. Right. The aspect ratio. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. That's cinematography. That's that's (laughs) forethought. I mean, I like the fact that it's foggy because the whole movie, everybody's acting like they're kind of hiding in the shadows and they're walking in the fog and, and everything's not as it seems. I like that, how it's shot. Yeah, the and, shadows are awesome because if you look at it, like when Louis shows up and you have Elza and Lazo, they're talking, you see the shadow that comes up and they have to change the conversation. It's foretelling. It, it's a foretelling yeah, shadow. Yeah. The shadows mm-hmm. are foretelling. And then when, when Rick is opening up the safe to give the $20,000, all we see is his shadow. We don't actually mm-hmm. see him. We hear him talking, but we see his shadow. I love the shadows in this movie. And that's what you don't get now with colored movies back in the black and whites you can use shadows to really make statements and i think again people who don't like black and white movies you got to check this out movies that use shadows really well you know you're in for a good movie when that happens maltese falcon is another one we just talked about maltese falcon is another movie that uses shadows extremely well go check that movie out as well and then the music in this movie is is really good as interesting thought i did not know this until i read more about this movie the 
score of this movie isn't done, the composer of the movie isn't even talked to until after all the shots are already done. In fact, the composer to this film wanted the change as time goes by. He didn't want that song in the film, but it was already shot and they couldn't reshoot it because Bergman had already cut her hair for another film. The reason why he wanted to change the song wasn't because the song wasn't any good. Is if the composer had a song in the movie and it became a hit, he gets royalties. More money for him, exactly. Right, right. And I thought that was interesting. Well, it's, then, a, it's a happy thing because AFI named it as the number two greatest song in the, in the history of movies. And there are 100 songs, 100 movies list that came out in the early 2000s. I will defend Humphrey Bogart in this way as far as not knowing that it was going to be a hit. By all rights and accounts, it probably shouldn't have been. I mean, it's based off of a play, Everybody Goes to Rick's, that was a middling success on Broadway. It really had no following whatsoever. The writers play homage to the play in one of the first lines that Captain Renault says is, well, everybody goes to Rick's when he meets Major Strasse at the very beginning. This was not one of those movies that everybody thought was going to be the absolute tour de force that it became. And I think that's kind of freeing in a certain way, where the director's allowed to going to be allowed to do a little bit more and the actors are going to be able to act in a different way. If you have that pressure of this has to be the greatest movie ever made. Because this movie in a, somebody like Cecil B. DeMille's hands is not going to be nearly as good. It's like when the movie Cleopatra was made. Exactly. Cleopatra was made just to be the greatest movie ever made. You're 1,000% yeah. correct. Everything was the over per- the top in Cleopatra. And there was no way that that movie was ever going to live up to what it was supposed to be. And then this leads, I guess, into the final thing, because this was the best Oscar winner for 1942. Actually, it was the 44 Oscars. Was it the 44? So this was 43? It was March of 44. The movie came out in January of 43. The film came out on November 26, 1942. Did it? You know, it was a worldwide release on January 23. Three nineteen forty three. It was uh, released to Hollywood Theater in October twenty sixth, nineteen forty two. Well, either way, it's forty four Oscars. It ended up being a cultural hot point for movie. I mean, we're right in the midst of the war. It hit everything exactly right and exactly the right time, and it became a sensation. And while we say people today are they bemoan the Oscars for not having movies that are the big movie of the day as to be the best picture this is a case where this was the biggest movie of that era it rightfully sits as the best picture winner it's oscar worthy in any year to be perfectly honest i was looking over and we were talking about the reviews earlier i actually found one semi bad review of casablanca by the new yorker that rated as only pretty tolerable and that it wasn't up to previous movie of across the Pacific. So uh, what you're saying is the New Yorker has always been pretentious. <laughs> no, no. This movie has a lot going for it. We were just talking about earlier about the, the writers of the film. The Epsteins have been, been doing wonders with all these other type of movies, including Yankee Doodle Dandy, I believe was one of the films that they wrote for. You have Michael uh, Curtis. His resume is very impressive. So you have a really strong writing team. You have a very strong director. You got Warner Brothers, big production company. We already, already talked about the producer of the film really putting a lot of care into this. I am surprised that he thought it wouldn't succeed. Everything's in place. 
I, I don't want to get into the weeds too much about how all the pieces came into being, but Paul Henry and Ingrid Bergman both were with different studios. They were lent to this movie. At the time, actors weren't necessarily lent to another studio if they thought it was going to be a major motion picture. When you start to see all of these other actors start to pop up that are known to be signed to another studio. It was different in this period because of the war. They were trading people off. Kind of. companies more often here during this period of time than before and then after because of the fact of the war because they were very limited to the actors they had to recycle their own actors so many times that both sides needed new blood in there so they would lend each other out the actors that they need i mean originally when this film was announced to come out the star of this movie was going to be ronald reagan or at least that's what it was announced oh, jesus back Christ. then yeah, yeah. back then bedtime you, for bongo you set out a movie you threw out names onto a movie and then after that happened then you did all the changes after that then you found the real actors and if you could get the actors you announced and then you had those actors i had heard that about Ron you know, just, Reagan, but just yeah. to kind of go into a little bit about the 44 academy awards here just to kind of tell you how this movie really did and some of your stars so obviously it won best movie it won best director you've got humphrey bogart nominated didn't win, all right. Paul Lucas won, but he was nominated. You have Claude Rains was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in this. But didn't so, win. Didn't win. No, he did not win, but he was nominated. Ironically enough, Ingrid Bergman was nominated for Best Actress for, for Whom the Bells Toll. So the you movie got, she filmed right after this. I mean, so her name is all over the place in mm-hmm. 44. I mean, think about that. That's incredible. It's a pretty interesting story when you think about how they didn't think this movie was going to do any good. And it really, it really did well. It is definitely Oscar worthy. Oh, yeah, indefinitely. And like I said, it hit at the exact right time right in the middle of the war. Right. And, And it's a good feel. One last thing I will say about this, and some people have said that Rick's character kind of represents America in the war at this particular time. Because when this the play itself, America was kind of like in the... I'm not sure what side I'm taking kind of mode. Some people think that Rick represents America and his uncertainty if he wants to get into the war, not into the war. You I think can see that, that. Will, what it's worth? I, I'll, I'll say that there are meta references that a couple that I've mentioned here in the movie, I can see where somebody could read it that way, whether that was the intent or not. That's hard to say because like Rick, America played both sides of the fence in a lot of different ways and was kind of isolationist, but that's a whole nother topic. I mean, I could see where somebody could read it that way. There's a lot of things we could read into this movie. and But the thing is, is this movie to me is how you talk about movies, Ted, that you like. When I walked away from this movie, I have a smile on my face. I think the last line, I've heard that line before I saw the movie. When I saw it in the movie for the first time, I just had a grin from ear to ear. That, oh, there's so many lines in this movie that you oh, are just part of day to day culture. But when you see it in the movie for the first time and you've heard it before, you are amazed how that line works. Every single time I watch it, it doesn't fail for me to have a smile on my face when they say the lines because I'm like, at the end of the movie, is that the relationship we really want to see? No, but that's what you get. I think it's the relationship I want at the end. We relate to our best friend and those type of relationships. And so I like that ending because I always see the guy get the girl at the end. And this is different. The guy doesn't get the girl at the end. But the guy gets a friend for life, it seems. 
All right, gentlemen, let's talk about our reviews. We've been uh, talking about Casablanca here for quite some time, and I think we're all going to be on a positive end. So I'm going to kick it off here. So like I said, I came late to the party here with Casablanca. I didn't see this movie probably until five, six years ago, give or take. And uh, at that time, it really was just another black and white movie to me. It really didn't have any sane. People I know have seen it, and they said, hey, man, you like movies? You should watch this. Give it a shot. I did, and I went, yeah, it's good. Okay. You know, and then I watched it again. And, you know, as I watch other movies, older movies especially, you really start to appreciate the acting uh, that is in this movie. Some of the real, you know, actors of the era are just incredible. And you, you really appreciate them and you miss them. Because sometimes the acting in today's movies is just really not at par of what a lot of these great movies were. And as I'm watching this movie more and more, I'm realizing what a great movie it is there are flaws of course there's some pretty cheesy special effects there's a few miscues but overall when you look at the acting in this movie when you look at the supporting cast when you look at the leading cast when you look at the cinematography when you look at the plot when you look at the overall balance of the movie you got a whole swing towards the end there that you're not sure how it's going to end you know it's a 50 50 shot you really don't know who she's going to end up with and where she's going to end up and it's got a little bit of suspense to it i think it's an incredible movie it's um one that i could definitely see why it would be ken's favorite it's obviously not my favorite but it's definitely high up there it's probably top 20 top 25 of all time it's an incredible movie and for me this is a I'm going to give this, um, oh boy, you know, I'm I'm teetering a little bit because it is a movie that I will watch again. And I really appreciate this movie. I've watched it three times in the last week. You know, it really never gets old. It really doesn't. I'm giving this one an A-. And I give it an A- just because giving something an A or an A+, just puts it on that top 10 tier of mine. Ted, where are you on it? I know that everybody likes to rank things. For me, when we get to like the top five, my favorite movies, at any given time, they're all interchangeable to me. Because if you've reached that level for me as a movie, it has such a deep meaning to me that it's it's really hard to choose. This movie is that. If I had to say, this is probably my favorite movie. It's definitely my favorite movie of the studio era, like Ben Mankovich of Turner Classic Movies has said. This movie just hits me. I'm a very much of a person where I either like to be intellectually stimulated by the movie or I have to have a deep feeling. And this movie makes me do both. When those things cross is when it's an explosion for me as far as how this movie hits. This is an A+. I mean, if we could do A++, I'd probably do that. This is a movie that I think that everybody should at least see once, if not multiple times in their life. Because I think when one showing, you don't get a lot of the subtleties that make the movie beautiful. There's very few that can compare to it. And so that's why it falls in my opinion, one of the greatest movies ever made. Goodness, you give my A+, plus, sounds like an F now when I'm uh, I'm Sorry. reviewing this one. That's okay. I'm no surprise what Ken's going to give it, but let's hear his breakdown. What do you got? It's hard for me to talk about this movie because of the fact that there's just so much we didn't talk about. There's just so many tidbits in this movie that we could have made this 
easily a two, three hour podcast because there's so much stuff we could have drawn out and talked about these actors and, and these scenes because there's so many great scenes and so many great lines that they've become iconic and this movie is iconic. And the thing that I can say that I regret the most when it comes to movies is not watching this earlier in my life, that I had to wait until I was in my 40s to actually watch it for the first time. And that is just a crime. And so if you want to get out of jail because you haven't seen this movie, watch it as soon as possible. This movie is worth it. I've had other movies that I've considered my favorite movie before this. And all of them have had a flaw, whether it be I just want them to get past a certain part in the movie. This doesn't do that. I never sit in this movie and go, all right, get past this. I want to get to the next scene. I never say that about this movie. I've said it about almost every other movie I've seen in my lifetime. But this movie, I've never said that. And I think the time of this movie, I think it clocks in about an hour and probably 40 minutes, give or take a few minutes. It's perfect length, perfect actors, perfect writing. We talked about the shadows. We talked about the relationships. I will argue that my favorite relationship with Louie and Rick at the end, being together, is the relationship I want to see. It makes me feel good. It almost kind of equals those relationships out. I know everybody wanted Rick and Elza to be together, but I'm very satisfied that it's Louis and Rick that's together. Louis fun. After this, I, I talked about how I started to become a big Humphrey Bogart fan, but this movie made me become a big Claude Rains fan. And I had seen Claude Rains in other movies like The Invisible Man and one of my other favorite movies of all time, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And I was watching this movie and I didn't realize it was him how do I know this guy? Because in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, he looks older. And this is actually made about three, four years later. We want to be Rick. Rick is the kind of guy that most men want to be like. Ingrid Bergman in this movie is kind of like the woman that we all wish we had outside of our own wives. Ingrid Bergman is beautiful here. She's beautiful in how she presents herself, her looks, her demeanor. I mean, how she walks across the floor, how she talks to Sam, how she talks to Rick, how she just interacts with every person that she's there. Whenever she's on screen, I'm, I'm in love with her. I had talked with Ted earlier today about these iconic roles that I've seen where, like an actress like Ingrid Bergman, we had talked about this, about Kate Hudson in Almost Famous, and how captivating these actresses are in these movies. This is what Ingrid Bergman has in this movie. She makes me want to watch her in this movie. It's amazing that you have this many actors that I can't wait till they get on screen. I can't wait to see Rick again. I can't wait to see Elsa again. I can't wait to see Louis on the screen again. I can't wait to see Sam. I can't wait to see these actors. And that says something about this cast. This movie for me, of course, is an A+. I've always debated about giving out grades and stuff of that nature and how many A-pluses I can give. I made a decision a while back that no other movie can be an A+. So this will be the only A-plus movie I'll probably ever give on our podcast. Very cool. So two A-pluses. Hey, an A-minus isn't shabby, but obviously compared to you guys, might as well be an F. I feel like I went too low on it, but I'm still sticking by my grape. All right, Ted, where can they find us on the World Wide Web? Well, we can be found on Twitter at movie underscore marquee with two E's. And then, of course, whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, whether it be Apple, Spotify, or Anchor, give us a rating and review that helps us get noticed and helps us to hopefully maybe one day get on one of the charts. It makes us feel good. And if you leave us a, a review, let us know and we'll give you a big thank you. A big old kiss to you, right? A virtual exactly. kiss. 
It could be the is starting it, of a beautiful friendship. It's absolutely right. Yeah. Is this the yeah. dating game? The okay. dating game. What's going on with us on Facebook? Join us on Facebook. Type in the movie marquee and ask to be part of our community. We have a, a fun time in our community. There's a lot of interesting articles that you can read. One of the articles that are, we have here is the worst movies ever made, according to Rotten Tomatoes. So that's <laughs> an article that we put out there. Ted had talked about the best pictures that were nominated for the Academy Awards this year. And in fact, the reason why we did Casablanca is we nominated six films for you to choose from for us to do an Oscar film. And Casablanca was our winner by a slight majority over Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. So we thank you for voting. It allows us to know what you want to listen to. So we'll probably see the Lord of the Rings trilogy sometime down Isn't the road. that a movie about three hours of people walking? walking Pretty much. Yeah. Even the trees in that movie walked, right? Big ears and bad accents. That's all it yeah. is. It's only so we one have... return, and that's of the Jedi. <laughs> so join us on our community on Facebook. And also join us next time, because we have a new film series that we'll be tackling. We are going to be so... tackling the first three Rocky movies. We're going to continue with the 1977 winner for best movie, Rocky. I predict pain. pain. You predict pain. Well, well played. So maybe eventually we'll do Rocky Four, but we're going to do the first three Rocky. That's where Rocky, he solves the communist problem in Russia. War. We could use him right now, right? The Cold War ended because Rocky. We're going to drop Sylvester Stallone in the Ukraine and That's everything right. will be resolved. We're going to do the first three. Maybe eventually we'll do four. We're not going to do five. And maybe we'll do the Creeds down the road. They made a fifth one? Uh, apparently they did. And it was Sylvester pretty... Stallone doesn't even huh. acknowledge that there was a I don't, fifth one. Maybe. I didn't even know there was a fifth one. It yeah. made Clerks 2 mm. look like Citizen Kane. So. Wow. Yeah. Clerks 2 is close to Citizen Kane. Of course it is. Sure. That's all the time we have for this episode. We look forward to uh, doing the first Rocky. I'm really pumped. It started off a revolution. We're going to tackle it, folks. Thank you for joining us. Take care and have a pleasant tomorrow, everyone. See you at the movies. See you the next time at the movie marquee. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.